Well, good morning. Um, we've got some helpers are going to be handing out to you a handout, but if you have your Bible, you can turn to Psalm chapter 19, the 19th chapter of the book of Psalm, the Psalms. So as we continue our journey through the Psalm, um, Psalms, this uh, Psalm 19 is a very, very helpful one. I, I would have told you it was a helpful psalm uh, before spending this much time in it, um, but I have to tell you, I have thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed looking at Psalm 19. If for some reason, weather or something like that would have kept us from being together, somebody was going to have to hear about Psalm 19 today. So um, I, I might have even gone to the local pound and preached to the animals if I had to, um, because I was, I was pretty excited. I am pretty excited uh, about about this psalm and and uh, and the wonderful wonderful truth. So just remember as you're reading this, always timeline's huge for me. Uh, we don't believe the Bible is a religious storybook. Um, we believe it's all true history. And so as a result, uh, I, I I need to know where it lands in time. So this is 2,000 years before us right now. It's when Jesus lived. And about a thousand years before Jesus is when a guy by the name of King David lived. And this was penned uh, by King David. So we're looking at it roughly around 3,000 uh, years ago. All right, so let me read for us the, uh, these 14 verses. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night, reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and the words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from my hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Father God, this text clearly states to us that you have revealed yourself to us. You have shown us 
yourself. And this text goes so far as to even claim that you have done so in massive ways so that we couldn't miss it. You've done so by giving us a sun that is so burning hot that it provides our heat when it's upon us and we feel cool when it's not. It is the very being that holds all of the planets in, in check of where they are. You have given us creation in such magnificent ways as to give us the human body, which is so amazingly complex, so complex that it can even heal itself, so complex that we can study it over and over and not fully understand it. So amazing that it can reproduce other human beings. Wow. You have shown your complexity all across creation through all of the various types of animals and beings. Father, you are amazingly, amazingly creative and strong and powerful. You have displayed this to us to let us know who you are. That is pure grace that you've shown it to us. And yet, Father, your word shows us that if it weren't for your grace, every one of us on our own would ignore all of those. Every one of those, we would give it another reason and not turn to the very God, our creator. But you have shown special grace to open up our eyes to see to behold you as the one true God, to behold your son as our savior. And I pray you would be exalted, Father, this morning in our midst as a gracious God who has opened up eyes. I pray, Father, that we would be enamored at your grace in showing us any of you. I pray that we would find your word to be such an incredible gift that we will love it and treasure it as a people. And I pray, Father, that we would be left turning to you and asking for more mercy and more grace as we consider who we are and our need for help from you, our great Father, and through Christ, your Son. Would Christ be exalted in our time together, we pray. Amen. So one of the things that continues to amaze me about the Psalms um, is, although uh, it is, is the rich theology taught in them. So while they are incredibly poetic, and they are some of the most poetic literature, um, some of the oldest poetic literature we have uh, at all um, among us. Uh, but all of, all of that, there is still within them very rich, soul nourishing truth. So I often think if I weren't a Christian, what would some of my questions be about Christianity? And I think one of my top questions would be about unreached people groups. So we pray on a weekly basis for an unreached people group. And that is these are people groups that right now have no active gospel witness among the people group. And I think one of my questions would be something like this. Why are these folks condemned by God if they've never had the opportunity to hear the gospel? I think that's a very fair question to lodge at Christians. 
Psalm, light, Psalm 19 is beautiful for a lot of reasons, but it is likely one of the best chapters in all of Scripture to deal with that question. That's not all we're going to look at, but sometimes I need a focus of a question um, to look at. And hopefully by the time we get through, you'll see how that helps address that question. The psalm divides nice and easy. Preachers like three-point sermons, and it's a three-point sermon. It just divides itself. It's nice. Verse 1 through 6 focuses on what we would call general revelation, um, uh, the general revelation of God in creation. 7 through 12 focuses on what we would call special revelation. Uh, that is how God has revealed himself in the scriptures. And then uh, uh, verses 12 through 14, that's the reaction of the believer when his soul is revealed to God. So two spots where we see God revealing to us. And then the last one is, whoa, what happens if we have to be revealed to God? We might consider it the glory of God is revealed in the skies. The glory of God is revealed in the scriptures and our need for a savior as seen when our soul is revealed to God. So as we consider verses one through six, let me just quickly uh, recap those together. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims its handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun. It comes out like a bridegroom leaving the chamber, like a strong man. It runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. There's nothing hidden from its heat. So it's, again, incredibly poetic, beautiful language, but there's a very specific truth. So I've tried to summarize this in a summary statement for you. In creation, God has declared his power in distinct nature to all humans across all times. In creation, God has declared his power and distinct nature to all humans across all times. So my job as a preacher is to show you where I got that summary statement out of those verses. So in verse one, we see that the heavens, the skies, they declare or they proclaim the glory of God. The idea of the glory of God points to the power in the distinct nature of God. You can also see that David points out that the skies are what? He, descri he describes them. It's redundant. We already know this. But David goes so far as to say they are above us. He's showing that they're bigger than us because God himself is distinct from us. He has a nature different from ours. Not only are the skies above us, but he goes so far as to say, hey, the skies are his handiwork. The skies are not above God, but God is above them since he made them. God is not a fellow observer. God is the sole creator of all things. In verse two, we are told that the creation pours forth speech. So you got that's what that's the whole argument right here is that creation is talking. It's making an argument. Creation is making an argument. Speech is only helpful for humans. Animals make sounds, but they don't make speech. And please don't tell me about parrots and stuff like that. So persons make speech, 
That is one of the ways that we are image bearers of God. We like God. We, we engage in speech. We like speech. If you need any argument for that, look at the current news thread about how much money one man is willing to pay for a micro speech site called Twitter. Think about it. How much do we love speech? There you go. What does it offer? Speech. It's incredible. So that's what this is doing. That's the argument being made. Just in case we're afraid that God might reveal himself and somebody might miss it, David explains you can't miss it. You can't miss it because it's constant day after day and night after night, he says. So then in verse three, uh, verses three and four, he goes further to make sure we don't understand. It's not, it's not a select audience that's getting the speech. No, all humans, all humans where? Everywhere are in the audience for which God is giving this revealing, this revelation. The speech, the voice, it goes throughout the entire earth all the way to the ends of the world. Nobody, and that's huge for this point, nobody can miss this speech, says David. So God has revealed himself to all humans across all times, in all places, in such a way that we can see that he is powerful and that he's different than humans. Now, this is what we call general revelation. General revelation. We said earlier that there are unreached people groups where they have no access to the gospel. Well, when it comes to general revelation, this is a very key distinction. When it comes to general revelation, there are no unreached peoples. All peoples everywhere can clearly hear the speech of God in the beauty, complexity, and the depth of his creation. That's what Psalm 19 is arguing for. That's what David is saying. This is what Paul picks up on in Romans chapter 1. Put that in your handout in verses 18 through 20. Paul says there in that opening chapter to Romans, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. I mean, un, all, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is what? It's plain to them. Now, what is plain to them? Because God has shown it to them. So everybody's seen this. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power in divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. That's creation. So they are without what? Excuse. So, so here Paul says that God is angry at the ungodliness of men who have acted like they did not hear the clear speech of creation. But God has plainly shown all men everywhere that he's massively powerful. and He's very different from us. But all men, this is key, all men have failed to turn to God, acknowledge him as God. All humans have heard and all of us left to our own devices have denied what we've heard. And therefore, we are all without excuse. I've got a brother-in-law. His name is Nathan. Nathan's father is Stan. 
Stan is a general contractor. He's a builder. I recently walked through a home that Stan built. It was nice. It's really, really nice. Top quality home. And I, it's coming from me. I don't know much about these things, but it sure looked top quality to me. So let's pretend for a second. Let's play this game that we're back. Let's just, I just picked the 1500s. That sounds like a fun time. Um, and somehow we were able to use a time machine uh, and time warp uh, that house. So the house stand built. We're going to time warp it back into the 1500s. Same location, uh, but it would be back, you know, 1500s. And, and so you have all this undeveloped area all around. And then you have this beautifully cleared lot and you got this house this stand built, this really nice home is right there. And, and say that we all happen to stumble across it together. So now we got this house, we all stumbled across it. So we've got some different options about how we react to this home, which is going to stand out, you would think, um, in the 1500s, right? So, um, so we could do a couple things. Some may, uh, we, we could make ourselves at home in it and just give it really no thought at all. Just live our lives as if we've never ever considered who built this home. Well, if we do that, what do you think Stan's going to think about that? If he hears that's how we've treated the home he's built. Um, I don't think he's going to be very happy. He built the home. And if we're going to live in it, can't we at least stop two minutes and ask the question, like, where did this thing come from? Another option. We could theorize together, all of us together, and we could make a theory that, you know what? If we had just given it enough time and just a tad bit of chance, this house could have just evolved and it could have just come to be. It's not really special. It's just chance. That's all. Well, would that please Stan? Of course not. I mean, Stan worked hard on that home. You would greatly belittle Stan if you called it, well, you know, just mere chance, Stan. Another option. We could theorize that since the area around the house has a lot of squirrels, then they must have worked together to build the home. And we could start paying regular homage to the squirrels. Would that please Stan? No way. Stan's a lot smarter than a squirrel and the home's not built of walnuts, right? So what if we also decided to start treating this house in ways that it wasn't designed? What if, for example, we decided that we're going to take the chimney, not real sure what this is for, we'll just use it to store all the squirrels' acorns for them. And perhaps we'll take the windows, not sure what those are for, but they go up and down. We could use those to crack the acorns for the squirrels. And you know what? Those, I don't know what that thing is. It keeps moving. You, you do this open, close thing, just rip it off the hinges of the door, chop it up. We're going to use it for some kindling and make a fire outside because we're cold. Forget the fact that we have gas heat inside. Maybe we'll cut up the carpet and we'll build a teepee outside and we'll sleep in the teepee. That would be a great way. If Stan saw us taking all this that he'd done, built it, and looked down and saw this happening, or over, saw this happening, 
What would Stan think about all that? Well, I'm going to tell you, you would, Stan would be pretty upset. You would be facing the wrath of Stan, right? Um, I'm sure of it. Well, there you have it. Our God has built an incredibly beautiful universe. And though Stan's house is quite nice, it's nothing compared to the universe. Some of us simply ignore it. We're so enthralled with our current day-to-day life, we barely give the Creator a thought at all. That angers Him. Others of us have downplayed His creation as really nothing of major consequence. It's just given enough chance and time this would come about. That angers Him. Many of us have turned to false religions Given credit to beings that could never have created this thing and worship them as if they should get due credit for it. This is most evidently seen in how, or our misunderstanding is most evidently seen in how we have treated the creation. In particular, how we have treated God's most prized creation human beings. We cry often are rude to one another. We're selfish. We're impatient. We're unkind. We're unmerciful to the very creatures that God created. And he said, and by the way, if you want to ever know what I look like, they bear my image. That's how we've treated them. That's how we've treated God's creation. If Stan has a right to be angry with how we treated the house that he built, how much more does God have a right to be angry with how his very creatures have treated his creation? So a central tenet of Christianity is that every human has been given enough knowledge in creation itself to recognize there is a God who deserves worship and he deserves appreciation. But none of us anywhere having given, has given God the worship that he's due on our own accord. As such, there are no innocent humans who do not deserve the punishment of God. Every one of us has been given the clear speech of God's power and amazing beauty in the world around us. And inasmuch as we fail to try to learn and understand who he is, then we deserve his condemnation. That's Psalm 19. So general revelation is enough to allow us to worship God and seek God. God has given all humanity enough knowledge for humanity to rightly turn towards him. And despite all this, we've turned away from God. And then this interesting stuff, that's verse one through three, but four and five, What is he talking about with this son and a bridegroom? All right. So you got this son. It says in them he set a tent for the son, which comes out like a bridegroom and leaves its chamber like a strong man and runs its course with joy. All right. we, We really should spend a whole sermon on that, but we're not. So I gave you a ton of notes in there. Here's the summarized version. 
So we see that the son is an actor. He's like the central actor that commands all the attention. Never been to an ancient Near East wedding. But one thing I do know about an ancient Near East wedding, the bridegroom is the center of attention. That would be different in the West. We have the bride at the center of attention. But an ancient Near East wedding, the bridegroom, he's the one who gets all the attention, right? So by saying the son is the bridegroom, he's the, he's the chief actor, man. It's all about him. But there's a foreshadowing. See, there's a foreshadowing of how there would ever be salvation for a bunch of creatures who've acted like we have. How do we get that? Well, it's not coincidence that we have the picture of a bridegroom and a son. I've given you verses in this. So from literally the very first verse, I mean, the very first book of the New Testament, all the way to the very last book of the New Testament, Jesus, our Savior, is repeatedly referred to as what? A bridegroom. I've given you multiple texts that, that can show that. Furthermore, the Son or the absence of the Son plays a crucial role in the very final two chapters of all of Scripture. So there we are told, so remember, Jesus, we have bridegroom, right? Now, what about Son? Well, listen to this. This is uh, the very uh, end of the scriptures. Uh, Revelation chapter 21, verse 23. It's on hand out. The city, he's talking about the new heavens and the new earth here. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the lamb. So in this new city, there is no sun because the sun is the lamb. Who's the lamb? Well, he happens to be the very same one who is the bridegroom. Look at chapter 22. They will need no lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light. So I believe that these verses foreshadow that salvation comes from God for the people of God. In the new heavens and the new earth, we will not be tempted to fail to worship the creator our attention will always be on him because he will be our very light of day. And he will be the very being about which the entire universe orbits around. Okay, so we've seen that God has revealed himself in creation, but we on our own have suppressed that truth and ignored it. Next, David turns to the glory of God in the scriptures, verses 7 through 11. Verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey uh, of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned in keeping them. There's great reward. All right, summary statement. God has clearly revealed his perfect will and ways in the scriptures, offering life and help to his covenant children. God has clearly revealed his, his, way, his will and ways in the scripture, offering life and help to his covenant children. Let me show you that. So verse 7 clearly states that the scriptures are perfect. Further, the scriptures are called the law of the Lord, 
Well, we've done enough study on this word lately that you probably know that when you see Lord in all caps, that means Yahweh. That's the personal name of the covenant God. Well, guess what? Has he used Yahweh at all yet? Nope. He hasn't used it yet. He never speaks of Yahweh in those opening verses in verses one through six, because that isn't about a covenant thing. That's what God does for all of creation. Now we get to Yahweh because we move from general revelation to special revelation. This is what God gives to his covenant people. Keep that in mind. The revealing of God covered in the previous verses is general revelation. But David is not talking about general revelation here to all humans. He's talking about a special revealing of God's will to God's children. Friend, if you're here, you have the special privilege of hearing the scriptures. That is a privilege that many people go their entire lives never having the opportunity to hear. Now, just like general revelation, you can ignore it. Just like you can ignore God as your creator, you can also ignore the scriptures. But God's covenant children will hear and trust the scriptures. The end of verse 7 explains that the scriptures are capable of reviving, bringing life. You want to know where to find life, real life, hope? You find it in the scriptures. In verse 8, he makes the same point by calling the scriptures right. And then he says they rejoice the heart. In verse 9, he states how good and enduring are the scriptures. In verse 10, he explains how life-giving and refreshing are the scriptures. And they prove this for the children of God. He calls them better than the sweetest of all food, better even than the nicest of all riches. The scriptures are incredibly valuable to the people of God. So general revelation goes out to all creatures all the time. Over and over in verse 6, you heard the pervasive, constant nature. It's going everywhere. It's all the time. Nobody can stop from hearing it. But here in verse 7 through 11, we don't hear that sort of talk now, do we? No, nothing like it. Instead, we are told about the perfect and effective nature of the scriptures to the people of God. They're perfect and they work. While the scriptures don't reach all, the ones they do reach, they greatly change. They revive, they make wise, they enlist rejoicing, they enlighten, and they bring reward. I mentioned earlier about going to see one of Stan's houses that he built. Well, it gets much better than that, much, much better. I actually got a tour of the house with Stan. Now listen, that was cool. Never toured an entire house with the guy who built every part of it. That's pretty cool. He showed me some of the features of the house that I would never have picked up on. Stan knew it in and out. He could tell me every piece of material, how much the material cost, all of it. It was great. Why? Because I got to hear from the builder himself. Quite honestly, to be honest, Stan's just not a, the most verbose guy you'll ever meet. Um, I'm sure he's trying to be honest, but still, this not very verbose guy who did who built it himself telling me anything was incredibly interesting. It was great. 
So when I pulled up to the house, went in the house, and walked around the house, well, that's general revelation. I was seeing what Stan had already revealed in the work that he'd done. But the moment Stan opened up his mouth and he started telling me about the house, now that's when special revelation started. Thousands of people have driven by that house and admired it. Many people have gone in like me and they've appreciated it. But see, I'm special. Me and a few others, we actually got to hear from Stan himself. That's why we call it a special revealing. It's special revelation. Beloved, we have been given a special revealing in the scriptures from our God. Of course, this should be a necessary part of our diet. But more than necessary, it should be sufficient, all that we need. <laughs> Can you imagine if, if someone else come, came to me after Stan gave me his tour and they started telling me about the house? Tim, let me tell you something about this house. Yeah, over here, over here, and I got this over. What am I going to do? Well, you know me well enough. I think I would say, hey, hey, hey. You don't need to tell me about this house. Stan. Stan already told me about this house. I talked to the builder himself. Friends, we don't need anything else. To be made in the image of our God and more like our God and more like Christ Jesus than what he has given us in the scriptures. He has spoken. It's more than enough. It's glorious. It's sweeter than any honey and richer than any gold. Stan might not be verbose, but our God is. He is so verbose. And his writings are world-renowned. He's given us 66 books spread across centuries, and they still endure today. What more must we need to know than what he has given us? If you don't already have a plan for consuming the scriptures on a regular basis, please talk to one of the elders at some point. I'll tell you this, honestly, a great first step is to show up here on a weekly basis. I can't promise you you're going to enjoy this time every week. I can't promise you that. I can't promise you you'll be entertained by it. You probably won't. You'll probably need a nudge buddy every once in a while and say, hey, man, wake up. Right? That's going to happen. Some of you probably need it this morning. That's going to happen, right? I can promise you this. You will hear the word God. You'll hear the scriptures and you'll eat. And that's what we need. David gloried in God as revealed in creation. He gloried about God as revealed in the scriptures. But then everything changes there in verse 12. So helpful. I get this. He shuddered at the thought of himself revealed before God. Verse 12, who can discern his errors? This is how it, declare me innocent from my hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. I'll let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. 
I understand David to be saying this. After seeing the massive, perfect nature of God, we should be left amazed at our unrighteousness and need for salvation. In verse 12, he says, who can discern his errors? Friends, I get this. When we consider our lives, we realize we can't even see so many of our faults, more or less enumerate them. Then he says, declare me innocent from hidden faults. As David considers the power of God, when he looks at the requirements of God in the law of God, he asks that he will be declared righteous from his hidden faults. Let me tell you what he's not asking here. He's not asking for someone to declare him righteous because he's already righteous. He can't be saying that since the very previous statement. He says, I don't even know all the things I've done wrong. Who could? Instead, he's asking God to declare him righteous even though he is not righteous. In verse 13, he continues the same line of thought. After admitting there are many sins he doesn't know of, he asks for help controlling the sins which he is aware. And again, he asks for a Savior. He begs, let them not have dominion over me. Only then could he be considered blameless and innocent. If God saves him from himself. In verse 14, he asks God to change his heart and mouth so that he would be acceptable in the sight of God. And then he gets at the A in there. Oh, Lord, that's Yahweh, my life, and what? Redeemer, my Savior. When David considers the vastness of God as shown in creation, when he sees the requirements of God as laid out in Scripture, his only hope is that this same powerful, perfect God will become his Redeemer and foundation. Only then would he ever be declared righteous and innocent or blameless. Let's add on to our stand story we've been tracking. Let's add a new episode. Let's just say that after our grand tour, Stan turns. Stan and I just finished his tour together. He turns and he says, now, Tim, this is your house now. I'm going to leave this house to you. Man, I'd be all excited. Wow. Man. Then Stan says, but before, I just want to kind of go over my expectations about how you keep the house. Sure, sure, you go ahead. He begins to tell me that, you know, I just I have no tolerance for any dust at all in any part of the house. I want no smudges on any floors. It, I expect that all the mirrors will be spot-free all the time. Well, on the walls, no marks. Good gracious, no marks. The floor should be clean enough that if needed, we could perform surgery at any moment. The yard should have no weeds. And the grass, never shorter than two and a half inches and do not. Surely would never be above three inches. I like a fresh coat of paint applied every two months interior, six months on the exterior. And I typically perform a shingle by shingle inspection of the roof on a quarterly basis. And of course, all the air filters and water filters, we change those every Friday, of course. Well, now what just happened? What sounded like a great idea just became a terrible idea. 
I mean, I know me. I know how clumsy I am. I walk by walls, and just by walking by, I leave marks. I smudge floors somehow in my sock feet. If I have to get on a ladder with the attempt of getting up to my roof, I'm going to go ahead before that moment and just pay the copay in advance. I might just go ahead and pay the deductible because it's not going to be pretty. I don't know what I do to mirrors, but the more I attempt to clean a mirror, the worse it gets. It's just It just takes forever, and it looks worse after 20 minutes. It's one of those things in life you can work harder, and it gets worse. Well, watch what happened. All the general revelation about this house, the glory that it had when I pulled up to it and saw it, and I walked around it, even without staying, that's the general revelation. I was amazed. I felt, wow, it's a great house. And then all of the special revelation. When he's telling me all the intricate details and exactly what he did here and all of that stuff. While that had a moment of making me feel appreciative. All of that suddenly became a burden and a weight. When I realized what it is I must have to do to keep this up. When I realized my inadequacies and my deep needs. And then, in my little episode, Stan gets a big smile on his face. And he starts to chuckle. He puts his arm around me and says, oh, whoa, Tim, wait, wait, wait a second. You're not going to have to do these things. I'll do these things. I'm not leaving. I built the house. I'll keep up the house. You live in the house. My friends, welcome to the gospel of Christianity. If you think Stan's requirements are a bit much, you have never tasted or considered the requirements of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Jesus says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never get into the kingdom of heaven. So what do we do? We trust in the amazing truth of the gospel. We trust the builder is going to move in and he'll maintain the house and he'll keep it in immaculate condition. Paul says it better in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should now walk in. He built the house. He maintains the house so we can live in the house. So the prayers of asking God to show us our unknown errors to keep us from our current condition or temptations, to make us blameless and right. Those aren't just one-time prayers on the way in. Those are constant prayers of the people of God as we live under his rule. The more that we see the wonders of his house and his perfections, the more we want to live in a way that pleases him. And the entire time we know he's right here. He'll maintain the house. 
summarizing Psalm 19 in closing, let's use the same question we used in our opening. Why are unreached people condemned if they've never heard the gospel? Well, you probably already noticed that the question is actually poorly formed. Christianity doesn't teach that anyone is condemned, condemned because they've not heard the gospel. Hearing the gospel is receiving special revelation. That's not where the condemnation comes. People are not condemned because they have not received special revelation. They are condemned because they have ignored God's clear, constant, general revelation. Unreached peoples are condemned because, like us, even though God has clearly shown himself to be powerful and divine, they have suppressed that fact and exchanged it for a lie. That is why they're condemned. The real question we should ask is why are Christians not condemned? Every one of us has suppressed the truth for a lie. So why are we not left to bear the wrath of God? Because the bridegroom has redeemed us by opening up our eyes to see. How does he do that? Well, the Spirit of God opens our eyes first to see the general revelation of nature. Yes, there is somebody bigger than me and he's in charge. And then the Spirit of God opens our eyes to see him in special revelation, the Scriptures. In the Scriptures, we have brought the gospel. Or as Paul says in Romans 10, 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We are not condemned because grace opened our eyes to see and believe. The creator has become our handyman. The Lord has become our salvation. We pray for us. Father, we are often tempted to think that the gospel is made up later, that the church kind of came up with it after Jesus. I'm so thankful that this was written 1,000 years before Jesus ever walked the earth. It is clear how you have worked, have you, how you have intended to work, from the very beginning of time, you have clearly shown yourself to the world in generation after generation. People have ignored who you are. Father, you have been so kind to not leave us there. You have given us the scriptures and for every one of us who has had the ability to hear the scriptures even just this morning, we give you praise and glory. And Father, I pray that just like we can be ignorant enough to ignore the presence of what it means that there's a sun that shines, I pray, Father, you would keep us from ignorance of not hearing the scriptures call us to faith in Christ. Father, thank you that you are the builder who moves in. Thank you that you are not through with us and you will save us unto the end. We ask all these things to you, Father, through the strong name 
of your son, Jesus, that your spirit who has given us the special revelation, that he'll continue his work in your church. Amen.